The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. We made it together. It's hump day. Let's give you your Wednesday headlines. The U.S. records more than 47,000 coronavirus cases, hitting a new daily record. White House advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci warning infections could reach more disturbing levels. I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around. And so I am very concerned. Uh, A bit of a mixed start to the second half in Asian markets after closing out a bull run in the second quarter. Meanwhile, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin promising to extend up to $140 billion in crisis loans for the hardest hit industries. Meanwhile, we've got FedEx delivering a bottom line beat, sending shares sharply higher in after hours trade despite a 50% drop in profit, whilst the US shipping group says it will not provide an earnings forecast. Meanwhile, Airbus, though, putting 15,000 jobs on the line, with the CEO telling staff the crisis is far from over and could get worse. But the French aerospace giant facing big union resistance. Unions are promising a mighty battle. America has suffered its biggest one-day spike in virus cases, with 47,000 new infections confirmed on Tuesday. Texas reported another record daily rise, increasing by just under 7,000. California and Florida also logging sharp upticks in infections, despite moves by states to reverse plans for lockdown reopenings. The U.S. CDC now estimates more than 2.5 million people in the country have tested positive for the disease. Testifying on Capitol Hill, the White House health advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, said he was extremely worried by the new figures. We're going in the wrong direction if you look at the curves of the new cases. So we've really got to do something about that, and we need to do it quickly. Short answer to your question is that clearly we are not in total control right now. We are now having 40-plus thousand new cases a day I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around. And so I am very concerned. The U.S. Senate has voted to extend a $130 billion government bailout scheme for small businesses until August the 8th. The legislation, which is due to expire today, must now be approved by House lawmakers. The so-called Payment Protection Program has handed out money to almost 5 million businesses around the country in a bid to help save jobs during the pandemic. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin told lawmakers he's confident there is cross-party support to extend the program and focus it on the industries such as hospitality, which have been hardest hit by the pandemic. We do support additional legislation, and we look forward to working with the House and the Senate on that as it relates to the PPP. I've already had conversations with the SBA committee in the Senate about repurposing that $135 billion and think that should be done, and look forward to working with both the House and the Senate so that we can pass 
legislation by the end of July. Meanwhile, Fed Chair Jerome Powell warned of the impact of the recent spike in cases. I certainly wouldn't forecast that. And so this just just hypothetically, um, a second outbreak uh, could, um, you know, force governments and force people to withdraw again from economic activity. And I, I think the worst part of it would be to undermine public confidence uh, which is what we need to get back to lots of kinds of economic activity that involve crowds. Uh, there you go, Jay Powell with his testimony then. A couple of fascinating bits of uh, information from the investment banks as they continue to put their equity departments and their research departments to work effectively to try and figure out what to do in the second half. So as we very much focus on the second half playbook, let's just remind you of uh, where we closed out the trading day as we brought the first half of the year to a close here. And I think just those positive closes reflective of the uh, momentum that we saw through the second quarter, even as that momentum began to dissipate a little bit through June. There are reasons to be optimistic according to those same investment banks. And a a note from Goldman Sachs here, they're pointing out focus on companies with liquidity around the trade. I know I've spoken to a number of fund managers recently who've been complaining that they've had to move to smaller lots because they feel that some parts of the market are lacking liquidity, particularly in sectors that have been unloved, like hospitality, for example. And then a fascinating note, because I know there are the gunslingers out there who watch us for day trading tidbits. For those of you who are building longer-term portfolios portfolios and thinking about putting money away for your children's education or for that house that you want to buy some way off in the future or just for life planning. JP Morgan talking about how 60-40 doesn't work anymore. Your allocation, 60% equities, 40% bonds. They're suggesting the bond segment of that positioning is now making you vulnerable to pullbacks and underperformance. And what they're suggesting is something they're calling 20-40-40, 20% bonds, 40% hybrids like mortgages or REITs or uh, utilities, and then the other 40% you put into equity funds. And all of this is fascinating because we are grappling here to figure out what the second half of the year is going to look like. But we've had some interesting information, I think, from stocks as we begin to look at second quarter earnings that tells us that even if this Uh, infection rate continues to rise, we have lockdowns in some part of the world, there will be some companies that benefit. Micron. Let's have a look at uh, Micron and we'll show you the uh, the share. Where is it? Let me turn around. Ah, thank you very much. It's behind you. Uh, still panto in the pandemic season. So uh, Micron then, and the reason Micron is doing okay is because the data centers are doing okay. The cloud is doing okay, and chip companies that are selling in to that technology ultimately are benefiting from that. So that's a a little slice of news from Micron that you can read across to other parts of the technology sector. And then where else? 
have we seen beneficiaries, if you like, from the stay-at-home trend? Uh, well, the, the director's really mixing it up for me this morning. He's not going to put it on the wall. Now he's just going to put it on a full-screen chart on the screen for you. So FedEx, and I want to talk about FedEx because, like a lot of these delivery businesses, there has been some benefit from the way consumers have had to move away from bricks and mortar to, in fact, delivery of products from Amazon and other companies. Um, And so FedEx, I think, reporting some of the challenges that they've had actually keeping up with demand in the current environment. But two companies, just to remind you, that seem to be doing okay at the moment in the first half and look like they will do okay in the second half. So where are we going to see the futures board pop up? Ah, it's on the screen. Uh, The indication is from the futures early doors that we will have a weak start to the trading session. But it is worth pointing out that while I've been here in the office or for about the last four hours preparing for this program, we have seen an improvement in the Asian markets by and large. The Nikkei, the drag as you look across these boards here, but in spite of some of the political concerns around the imposition of this new security law in Hong Kong, which we'll talk about shortly, as you can see here, uh, some of these China-related indices are actually higher this hour. Now, one of the other things that you'll see a lot in the analysis from the investment banks is, is inflation coming? Do we need to worry about inflation at some point? Is that around the corner because of all this additional stimulus? And one of the other things that many of them are suggesting is that you should be increasing your weightings in commodities. And they focus on WTI, of course, which has had an extraordinary uh, renaissance over the last quarter. Gold continues to hang on to the bid here for those who are worried about money printing or worried about inflation or just worried about owning anything else. And of course, uh, as Steve was telling us a bit about yesterday, his orange juice uh, futures, we're going to talk a bit more about some of the soft commodity opportunities this morning as well. But let's bring in uh, Tapon Data. He's head of global asset allocation at Aon. Tapon, uh, Tapon, good morning to you. M- maybe let's just start. If you could just tell us what your second half playbook looks like. Well, we um, so uh, we, we're looking at, at corporate profits because, of course, uh, you know we we have seen um, the beginnings of a, a large decline. But it really, uh, I think we shouldn't get too hooked on. What the precise magnitude of the drop that we see, you know, pre-COVID-19 and, and, you know, what happens over the following six months. It's more a question of how long it takes to to catch up. Uh, And so we'll be looking at that trajectory of recovery and then working through whether it is a kind of two, three year process or whether, you know, miraculously we can kind of recover the lost ground in in a year. I would say the market playbook currently is working along the lines of something that puts the clock right back in, in about 12 months' time. But I think that that is probably extreme because these economic and profit conditions don't lend themselves to that sort of uh, return, uh, corporate profits return profile. And, you know, the key problem for us is actually further out because it just seems to us as though even even if we allowed for that kind of V-shaped recovery, uh, a lot of the drivers of corporate profits are actually missing in, in the post-COVID-19 world. And, and, and that's where I think the, the real trouble begins 
because uh, as asset allocators, as we look ahead to those return prospects, uh, many of those profit drivers, uh, particularly profit margins, which we know are at multi-decade highs, those look likely to be unseated in this in this COVID-19 and post-COVID-19 environment. But, but Tappan, isn't, isn't the problem here that um, we, we need to be much more differentiating? We can't just say, when will the market and earnings come back to a point that we recall before the pandemic? Because when you drill into the sectors here, financials, industrials, energy, they all look like they're going to take a lot longer than those sectors that have done better, like tech, and healthcare, where the impact has been less severe. So as we think about how we allocate into the second half of the year, isn't it clear now that there are some winners and some losers, and those winners will remain winners for longer? Well, I think there is something to what you say. The differentiation, though, has become extreme because the winners that investors and the market are chasing are are, are narrowing, you know, perceptibly week on week, uh, and a narrow market with fairly limited breadth in terms of what investors really want is not a health, healthy market sign. And I, and I think it presages more volatility and potentially uh, weakness ahead. So the bumps and slumps will potentially have to come because the market cannot be as differentiated, as you say, in terms of continuing that. Right? Because the last three months has already been extreme in terms of that sector dispersion, and if you look within sectors, you see huge amounts of valuation dispersion. So even within sectors, markets have chased a smaller and smaller group of winners whose valuations have, have, you know, have rebounded very substantially, while others have been left behind. And it, it, that trend is kind of market-wide. It goes beyond sector. Uh, so it suggests to us that essentially it, it picks up in the way that a number of other indicators we look at pick up, suggests a high degree of unease underneath what looks like a, a, a nice V-shaped recovery. And one of the things is the way dividend futures are behaving. Because why? Why would, when the S&P 500 is, you know, within shouting distance of its, of its kind of February-March highs, why is it the dividend futures are saying the dividends will take three or four years at least to catch up with 2019 levels? Why is it saying that? Uh, it, because I think there is a realisation that the, the new normal post-COVID world will look very different and potentially hurt profits and profit margins. And that is going to be potentially multi-sector, not just the, the one or two sectors that are most affected. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm just, just the stats which I've been talking about the last few days, and I think people have ignored these because, as you say, they're herding into a small number of stocks. Look at this. Look at the Dow Transports had their worst start to a year for those bulls out there since 1984. The Russell 2K had its worst start to the year. Well, when do our viewers think? Yeah, uh, yeah ever. Ever in history. So that I 100% agree with you, so, which is why I'm even more confused, Tap, and why a man of your experience would even have any consideration or any interest in what the VIX is doing. You're asking the key questions and you are asking some very important questions, but one of your questions is why the VIX has encountered some resistance in the mid 30s. What is this exactly saying? And uh, we can have a look at the VIX, and the VIX is currently trading about 30.4, but quite frankly, having traded the VIX for many years myself before my wonderful career at CNBC, I would suggest it's one of the worst barometers in history, sir. Well, I think it, it, you, uh, you, you tread warily, but it, I think it is also try, it is trying to tell us something, which is extraordinary when you think about it, because what the Fed and other central banks have done, of course, policymakers you know, 
uh, included, is is a massive ex- exercise in volatility suppression. And yet, 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 uh, underneath it all, that volatility isn't completely suppressed. I mean, it's not just about those sector divergences we're talking about, which is a sign of market unease. This too, the, the fact that VIX is still stuck at those levels, is suggestive of this particular problem. And there's other technical issues behind the shape of the volatility curve, which also, to our minds, suggests that that you know there is much more than meets the eye. On the face of it, the volatility suppression exercise unleashed by the central bank has been superb and very, very successful. But underneath it all, a storm rages, and um, we, 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 you know, things might still work out in the end. If the market view uh, that we're up and out in, in another 12 months works out, yes, you know, the, the suppression, volatility suppression can work up to a point. But the point, but the, but I, what I would say is that it is not a license for a two, three-year workout. It, it works if if conditions return to normal relatively quickly. But will they? Will they? And, you know, we haven't even talked about some of these new normal factors which are not being allowed for. If the state really, you know, kind of steps up, you know, so whether corporate taxes rise, you know, whether the state potentially uh, takes more steps to kind of address some of the inequality issues, all of those things are not being taken into account. The market has no visibility on it. At present, all it can see, all the market can see is that sort of up-and-out recovery. But Tappan, I agree with you on many. In fact, I love thrashing this out with a a professional like yourselves as well. But the fact of the matter is people who have had existential uh, shock in the market, regardless of financial repression, regardless of what the central banks are doing, suddenly discover insurance. And they understand that insurance is at the money, near month, most active uh, volatility in the S&P, otherwise called the VIX, what have you. Suddenly they discovered, wow, we can protect ourselves. But before the crisis, and you know as well as I do, when they think the crisis has gone beyond us, they will have that VIX back down to sub-15 before you can say, I don't know, existential yeah. risk. I think that's, that, that, is, that is correct. But I really do think that the clock is going to be so hard to put back. So uh, it, it, it really does look as though the COVID-19 experience, I know it's a cliche, but the COVID-19 experience has fundamentally changed. And we haven't even talked about the whole localization drive that companies are undergoing, which in, in you know, which imposes huge costs. All of these drivers are profit margin negative. And look at where those margins are sitting all the way around. Okay, maybe in the favoured sectors, yes, but most of that 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 margin rise over the last 20, 30 years, you know, is based on factors which look suspect, frankly, as we look over the next two to five years. I think it is it is it is fundamentally different way of looking at markets to where we were even a year or two ago. I think it is that different. And we're going to say goodbye, but thanks so much for joining us uh, and for the conversation. Tapan Data, Head of Global Asset Allocation at Aon. So living under a new security reality, China takes greater control of Hong Kong as this new national security law is implemented. We'll be back right after this.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back. Facebook has for the first time designated a group known as the Boogaloo Movement, a dangerous organization after it incited violence against anti-racism protesters. The anti-government entity joins a list of 250 groups categorized as supporting terrorism around the world. The move comes as Facebook faces increased pressure from over 150 brands that have boycotted the social media platform's ad space, calling for it to do more to stop hate speech. Uh, the U.S. has formally classified Huawei and ZTE as national security threats. The declaration by the Federal Communications Commission bars U.S. companies from tapping into an $8.3 billion federal fund if they intend to buy supplies from the Chinese telecom equipment companies. The FCC called Huawei and ZTE products untrustworthy and says the U.S. will not allow the Chinese Communist Party to, quote, exploit network vulnerabilities and compromise critical communications infrastructure. China has implemented its national security law in Hong Kong 23 years after the city was handed back to Beijing by the British. Uh, according to the legislation, anyone who acts to undermine national unification could face up to a lifetime imprisonment. Well, let's get straight out to Emily Tan, who joins us now from Hong Kong. And Emily, uh, as one would expect, criticism from the US, Mike Pompeo, the UK, Dominic Raab and others as well. But I think it's very important to take a step back and perhaps you can explain to us exactly what has changed in Hong Kong. What exactly are the new rules? That's right. A very good morning to you, Steve. And Hong Kong woke up this morning to celebrate the 23rd anniversary of Hong Kong handover back to Chinese rule. But with that, also a new law, national security, which was enacted and went into force late last night at 11 p.m. Uh, if you may just remind everyone out there, in the last 24 hours, we had the NPCSC approve unanimously the national security law. Then what happened was it was inserted into Annex 3 of the basic law. It was promulgated in Hong Kong. So they overstepped the Legislative Council. President Xi Jinping signed it into law and then it was gazetted. And then now uh, everybody's uh, trying to read up on it. It's uh, six chapters with 66 articles. Well, what does it include? Well, it is not retrospective. In effect, Hong Kong is going to be exercising jurisdiction in most cases. The SAR has to set up a commission on national security and the central government will set up an agency here, a national security office. Now, what this does is it prevents 
curbs and punishes secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces with a maximum sentence of life in prison. Uh, suspects can be extradited to the mainland in complicated situations. Uh, for non-residents, you face expulsion, and for any companies, you face a fine. Uh, we're just hearing that in Causeway Bay right now, uh, there is some police action. There are some protesters that had come out in Causeway Bay, which have resulted in the police raising what is a purple flag, and it's a police warning that reads this. This is a police warning. You are displaying flags or banners, chanting slogans, or conducting yourselves with an intent such as secession or subversion, which may constitute offenses under the HKSAR national security law. You may be arrested or prosecuted. So less than 12 hours since it was enacted and put into force, uh, we can see that it is already being used and, and reminded to uh, these protesters in Hong Kong that we do have a new national security law and they may be infringing on it. Uh, Chief Executive Carrie Lam this morning was quick to come out and talk about it in the celebration when we had the flag raising ceremony earlier this morning. Uh, she was speaking uh, to dignitaries saying that this legislation is the most important development between China and Hong Kong since the handover. We also got a chance to hear, of course, uh, from uh, the uh, central government. Uh, they held a press conference and that's the first time that the public got to hear about this and uh, speaking to, of course, the international public about this law. Now, we are going to be hearing from Chief Executive Carrie Lam at 2 o'clock. Uh, she will be holding a press conference at CGO, central government offices, uh, flanked by the uh, Secretary for Justice as well, uh, to detail to Hong Kong people this new national security law. This is Carrie Lam speaking earlier this morning. It is an essential and timely decision for restoring stability in Hong Kong. The significance of this decision is multifaceted. It shows that the central government is determined to restore stability in Hong Kong after a year of escalating violence and riots since last June. It shows that the central government is determined to protect the vast majority of law-abiding citizens in Hong Kong from the minority who attempted to undermine national security. So as Hong Kong celebrates the 23rd anniversary of the handover, of course there are celebrations, uh, people holding their own uh, flag raising ceremonies and uh, various rallies. That's what you can hear uh, over the uh, microphone now. Uh, there is a pro-establishment rally going on, uh, but then of course uh, what we see custom every year at this time of year, uh, protests as well. Back to you guys in the studio. All right, Emily, thank you so much for that. And uh, within the last half hour, the German foreign ministers weighed in on this saying that Sino-European relations will be impacted by what is taking place in Hong Kong. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.